Well, again, uh, good morning, FEC family. Uh, always a privilege to be here with you. Uh, we're going to jump right into Philippians, and uh, this is actually our very, our very last Sunday uh, in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Um, hard to believe, right? Um, it's been a long season. The entire fall we've been here. Um, I know for me in this season, uh, it's been so relevant uh, and, and so encouraging for my life. And so I certainly hope that's been true uh, for you as well. I also know God definitely has something in store for us today uh, through this word. The reason I know that is because I've already told, told some of you, I told the huddle uh, this morning as we were kind of preparing. Um, on Wednesday night, um, you know, I'm preparing the sermon and I had already had a bunch of notes. I think it was like 21 pages of double spaced notes all ready to go. Um, and I have a, a newer uh, MacBook computer and Wednesday night I'm working on it and my computer crashed. Um, and so I'm like, ah, all right, well, it happens. Like, and so I open the computer and all my other Word documents like open and all the tabs, like Google's like, do you want to restore your tabs? I'm like, of course I do. And so I do that and then I'm scrolling through and sermon's gone. It's gone. Um, and so I'm looking through and I'm like, there's no way. Like I just started kind of like chuckling, there's no way. Um, and so did the backup like system and it's not there. And I did the second one, I'm online, I'm like, Call a friend, good attack. Nope. Going through, he's like, and it's, it's gone. So I'm like, all right. So we're either like, I'm either going to tell the worship team, you got to play an extra song to make, because it's going to be short. Um, or, or I have to just write another sermon. Um, I opted Thursday morning to, to write again. And so, uh, but I believe that um, uh, what, what an opportunity I was thinking for me. It's like, oh, just press on, keep going. Right? I'm like, all right, enemy, you can't, you know, you can't, you're not going to get me, right? Uh, I'm going to preach this word. Uh, and so as we open up chapter four, uh, I'm really looking forward and finishing this letter with you. All right? Well, as we, again, as we open up chapter four and consider the last several verses of this letter, um, it's really important that we insert ourselves into the flow of this entire letter. Otherwise, uh, this ending that we're going to be studying today. Uh, it, 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 has, it has the opportunity, I'll say, to become a, a little bit hollow. Um, so we need to understand where Paul's been, what he's been saying, and what he's been trying to show the church. Right? Context is always important, but context is really critical here. And this is the bottom line, that at the, at the heart of Paul's, uh, Paul and this letter is Paul's words in chapter 1, verse 21, where he says, To live is Christ... And to die is gain. And with that, we've seen over and over again that the controlling factor of how Paul interpreted life and saw reality was the supreme worth and the incomparable beauty of Jesus Christ. That to have him and to to know him, to be forgiven by Jesus, to to be loved by him, to be a partaker in his promises... To know that we will be with him forever is true gain, right? That we can stack up, we can can stack it all up, all that the world says is gain. And yet, we will always find that Christ is greater still, right? That's been the big idea. And then with that foundation laid, Paul spends the rest of his letter encouraging us to let the reality of who Jesus is what he has said, what he has done, inform every aspect of our lives. 
And so we've talked about how the supremacy of Jesus impacts our joy, our, our unity, our relationships, our humility, our grumbling, our identity, um, our anxieties, our, our thinking. We, we've talked about how uh, we should see our value based on Jesus's works, not on our own. And yet, uh, how we should press on to make Jesus our own, knowing that Jesus has made us his own, right? It's been such a rich letter. And now today, we're going to see Paul wrap up this letter by, by showing us how the supreme worth of Christ informs our contentment and informs our money. That's where we're headed uh, today, beginning with verse 10. We're going to see Paul addresses here in this section the supremacy of Jesus and our contentment. So let's read verse 10 again together. This is what Paul says to close the letter. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So Paul is about to thank the church, this church at Philippi, for sending him a financial gift while he was in prison. You have to remember, uh, we've talked about this before, but as a prisoner in Rome at this time, you were responsible for providing everything for yourself, right? The prison didn't take care of you. Your food, your clothing, all your basic necessities, it was on you. And while we see in the text that there was initially an issue getting help to Paul, we don't know what happens, but Philippi, the church there, couldn't get stuff to Rome. We know that eventually Epaphroditus makes it to Rome to help him. Okay? And so then we get to verse 11. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, here's the word, content. Content. I would really under, uh, encourage you to underline that word in your Bible, to circle it, to highlight it, whatever. That word, content. It's key to the text. Content. And this scripture in particular, I think, causes us to, to pause. Understand what Paul just said. Paul just said, not that I am in need. But again, let's remember, where is Paul? Right? He's in prison, right? He's in chains awaiting a trial that will result in his death. And he knows that. But he says, I'm good, actually. I have no needs. In fact, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. And how? And how? Because how many of us here, right, how many of us struggle with contentment on a daily basis for much lesser things. I know that's me, right? So, so Paul explains, and I believe this is so relevant to us, right? Because we all struggle with contentment. We all struggle with satisfaction. He says this in verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every, in any, excuse me, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, What Paul is doing here, let's understand, is highlighting two of the greatest tests of our contentment. Okay, Two tests to your contentment. Two of the most common tests. And the first test, the first, 
is the test of adversity. You can see that where he says, I know how to be brought low. He says, I've learned the secret of facing hunger and facing need. I know how to get through it. I know how to be content even when I have a need. So in our context, what would that mean? Well, that would be a job loss. That would be being brought low would be a relational difficulty, maybe a financial issue, health problems, uh, frustrating circumstances, any adversity. And Paul says, I know how to suffer. I know how to experience heartache, disappointment, difficulty in life, and yet remain content. And don't we all want that, right? And let's be clear as well. This isn't Paul. This isn't Paul speaking uh, theoretically. He's not being theoretical here. Paul knows, he knows what it means to be brought low. We know that Paul faced so many uh, trials and struggles throughout his life, even beyond this current imprisonment that he's in in Rome. We know this, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 13, he says this, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. So they're hungry, they don't even have water. He says, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and what? Homeless, okay? This is the life of a follower of Jesus, a leader. When reviled, he says, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Look at this. We have become and still are like the scum of the earth. How he describes himself and his circumstances. So this is very real for Paul. Very real. He has been brought low again and again. Yet amidst all this and more, he's telling us he has discovered the secret to true contentment. And then he mentions a second test, a second test that we face. And this one we often look, look over. And this is the test of abundance, the test of abundance, which is why he, sa- he says here, and I know how to abound. He says, I've learned the secret of being content while facing plenty and abundance in my life. And that's sort of funny at first, isn't it? A little bit ironic. Like, is there really a a secret to facing plenty? Is there really a secret uh, to getting through a season where I'm full and satisfied? But Paul is telling us here that there is actually a secret to true contentment when things are going well, meaning when you're healthy, when you're financially secure, when you have a nice home, when you have a good career, when you have good friends, maybe a good church community, when life in general is good. And like adversity, we know that the Apostle Paul had experience with a great abundance as well. Because from what we know historically, Paul grew up in a family that was very well off. Right? We know that he grew up um, in Tarsus, but he was sent, seemingly sent by his family to Jerusalem where he was very, very well educated among the elites of Israel. And from that moment in his life, Paul was extremely high class. Every indication we have about Paul tells us that. And yet, even in that, he says, I've discovered the secret to true contentment. Now, now, It's not that obvious, I think, it's not that obvious 
that we need to keep a close watch on our hearts when we're in a place of abundance. But, I think we know this if we really keep our eyes open, if we just look around our world, you'll know that that's not true. I could give a million examples, but, I mean, just think about, like, our celebrity culture, for example. Like, year after year, you read stories about celebrities, famous people who struggle deeply, who are in dysfunctional relationships, who get caught in addiction. How many times have you read someone who takes their own life, who has everything, right? It happens more often than we realize, probably. But not that that always happens, right? There's not like, oh, if you're well off or you, you, know, you face plenty, that's going to be your life. But, but at the other point, it's not that rare to see those sort of things amongst people that the culture tells us has it all, right? And so we need to understand that different things happen in our hearts depending if we're under adversity or if we're under abundance. It doesn't matter. You're still going to struggle, right? That's the point here. See, when we, when we are under adversity, affliction, our hearts, and I think we all know this, our hearts are more prone to worry, to anxiety. Uh, for, we want a desire for control when life isn't going our way. And so what we do in that state is we doubt whether God is going to show up, whether he actually hears us at all, whether he cares about us, right? We question his promises. We question his faithfulness. We question his provision. And little by little, what happens in that place is that we grow discontent thinking that only abundance can fix me, that only if I had a little bit more, then I'll be better, right? That we need less adversity, more abundance, and then life will be okay. But here Paul is saying that's actually not gospel thinking. Because under abundance, our hearts do something different. They aren't as prone to worry. They aren't as prone to anxiety and control. But under abundance, our hearts are actually more prone to something else. And that's indifference to arrogance to ambivalence, towards, specifically towards the things of God. And since many of our earthly needs tend to be met under abundance, we tend to doubt that God is even necessary or relevant, right? As our souls are lulled to sleep by all the good things that we have and all the things of this world. So again, our hearts might be momentarily pleased by abundance, but it doesn't take long for us to fade, right? And you know that, you've experienced that um, if you've got, ever gotten like even a new Apple product or something, right? You know that, right? The new announcement's made, right? You get the new phone, and I'm waiting. Even this, oh, I gotta get, you know, I'm gonna get the Apple, you know, the, the, the 13, and it's awesome for a week. And then after that, they're making an announcement about the next one anyway. Rumors are coming out. Right? And so we know that's what happens. We've experienced this. And, and why? Why? Why does this happen? Because the human heart is not satisfied by abundance and prosperity. Never. Right? We often believe that having more will fix our lives. But, but having more is a desire that's in us, in our flesh, that can never be quenched. Never be quenched by the things of this world. Which is why even in abundance, we grow discontent. So Paul says, 
regardless of the circumstances that I face, I've learned the key that enables me to be content. Whatever's going on in my life, I'm settled. And so, what's the secret to contentment? What's the secret to a satisfied life? And he tells us in verse 13, he says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you've read the Bible, even a little bit, you know this verse. If you watched a football game, you know this verse, okay? (laughs) But we so often, right, forget this truth. Forget it. We forget this. But even worse, we misunderstand what this means. In fact, uh, I, I believe this is one of the most, if not the most, misused verses in all of the scriptures. And so, what does it mean that we can do all things through him? Well, when he says, I can do all things, let's understand What he is not saying is, Paul is not saying, there is nothing I cannot do. There is nothing I can't do through, through Christ who strengthens me. No, it's not what Paul is saying. But that's how often how it's used, right? Escape from prison in Rome, I can through his strength. Become emperor of Rome. Win the Super Bowl, make this next three-point shot, get into Harvard, get that better job, get that car. I can, it's promised, through him who strengthens me. Right? It's, it's become like this mantra within the church that if I repeat this phrase enough, if I just believe it enough, if I muster up enough faith, there's nothing that I can't do with God's strength. And listen, Not only is that not true biblically, that's not even close to what Paul is saying in this text. Yes, I admit, that makes a really good motivational speech. And in my flesh, I even thought about, like, oh, I'm going to close Philippians, and it would be awesome. I stand up here, and I just get really louder. Through him, you can, you can do this, you can. You're down and out, you can't, right? And everyone would be, yeah, and go out, and I can, right? And I, yes, we can, right? (laughs) I could do that. I could do that. And if I did that, I would pray God would strike me down, right? Because that would be leading you astray. It's not what the Bible teaches and not what Paul is saying in this text. So then, what is Paul saying? What is he saying here? Well, it's, it's actually really simple. Remember the context When Paul says, I can do all things, he's saying, I can be content. This is all about contentment. That's the context. I can be content in all situations, in adversity and abundance, through God's strength. So again, the all things there is not referring to everything that we ask for. But it is referring to everything that life throws your way. So God promises here, it's it's an even more encouraging verse, actually, than you think. Because here he's promising to equip you, to sustain you, 
to strengthen you for whatever comes your way, good or bad. In other words, I can do all things. I can be content, satisfied, grounded, no matter what happens to me. That's what Paul is telling us here. So, for example, you're going into a job interview and your Christian brother or or sister, someone says to you this, hey, you got this. You can do all things, brother. What they mean is, you're going to get that job if you just have enough faith. But what this verse is actually teaching us is, regardless of what happens in that interview, you get that job, you don't get that job, you can handle it, you can stand firm through God's strength. Does that make sense? This is so important. You find a spouse, you don't. Your health improves, it doesn't. You're stuck in adversity or thriving in abundance. You can handle it, you can be content, fully satisfied through Christ who strengthens you. And this brings up another question then. What does it mean to do this in his strength? Well, we talked about this a lot, in, a lot through chapter 3. So go back. You can listen to those sermons. But just to recap, to tap into God's strength, it's really simple. To tap into God's strength, all you need to do is place a living and active trust in who God is, what he has done, and what Jesus promises to do for you. And Paul says that again, but in a slightly different way in chapter 4, verse 19. He says it this way. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul here, he's talking about there being a lack. There's a lack in this situation. And then God in that lack supplying, meeting that need according to his riches and glory. And so if you put all of Paul's thinking together, how does God strengthen us according to verse 13? Well, he strengthens us according to his riches in glory. That's verse 19. Follow me here. Okay? Follow me. So what are these riches? Then how do I become rich in Jesus Christ? Well, it's not primarily financial. Yes, God does bless tangibly at times and in seasons, but it's not an equation. You believe in Jesus, you have enough faith, you will be financially blessed. No. End times, and seasons, he does provide. But the most valuable riches, the riches he's talking about here, that he gives to us are relational. Infinitely more, more rich, by the way. And so when you see the scriptures talking about God's riches towards us, it's not referring to temporal, earthly, material gain, but something, again, much greater. God's relational, eternal riches, which is, again, again, all that he is and all that he has done for us in Jesus. His riches are that he, towards us, are that he rescued you, And me, he he redeemed us. That he has made us come alive in Jesus. His riches towards us are that he he forgives our sins, declares us not guilty, adopts us into his family as sons and daughters. He takes our unrighteousness on himself, on the cross, and gives us his 
pure righteousness and all that he deserved. He's given that to you and me. He frees us from condemnation. He seals us with the gift of the Holy Spirit so that now we can actually boldly approach God and his throne in confidence, right? Knowing that we are his, knowing that we belong to him. We are joint heirs with Christ, participants in his promises. In other words, in other words, in Jesus, we are swimming in an ocean of his riches and his blessings in Christ. Right? It's not that he gives everyone a Ferrari, okay? It's that he gives us himself. Romans 10, 12 says this, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. In other words, this is for everyone who has faith in Christ. He bestows his riches on all who call on him. doesn't matter who you are. So a living trust in him and his riches strengthens us. That's what Paul's getting at. Strengthens us with an inner satisfaction. And he's saying if you chew on that reality long enough, if you meditate on this deeply and often, it will lead you to true joy and contentment. That's what Paul is alluding to here. And really, it's the message he's been preaching to us throughout the entirety of this letter. That the more we know Christ and his worth, the more that we will be transformed. And specifically here, the more you and I will be content. Right? And I don't know about you, but this is... I was going through this, and you know, God did this. I'm, I'm telling you. I told you I lost all my notes. I wrote this out, then lost it, and had to write it again. I'm like, God, God, I get it. Because right? contentment, I'll be transparent with you. Contentment's an issue for me. It always has been. Satisfaction is an issue for me. It always has been. It's a temptation for me, even as a pastor in the church. It's never enough. So I have a message I always give to young pastors and church planners. One of the first things I it's never enough. You think you're okay, oh, I'll have a church of 70. It's never enough. It's not. You get to 120, and it's never enough. There's always a need for more. Baptize five, it's awesome. God, in your flesh, you want more. Always. Three people say amen in the sermon, you want four. <laughs> amen? <laughs> See? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> See? <laughs> I was temporarily satisfied with that response. But again, I don't, I, 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 this is so convicting to me. Because again, I struggle with this so much, being satisfied. And when I read these words from Paul, here's what I see, unfortunately. I see that there is actually no excuse. There's no excuse, excuse me, for my lack of being content. There's no excuse. It's simply my failure to see Jesus as beautiful and majestic as he really is. That's on me. And at the same time, though, I'm so encouraged by this because I also see in this text that true contentment and satisfaction is actually so close to me that it's possible for me that Paul says he learned contentment. That's what he says, which means I can learn it too, and so can you. Whether it's in adversity or abundance, we can be content if we actively pursue, trust, and enjoy him. So let me ask you this morning, how's your level of contentment? 
How's your level of satisfaction? And what does that say about the worth and supremacy of Christ in your life? Paul moves on, and he addresses the supremacy of Jesus and our money. You thought it got quiet right there. Wait till this. Look at verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. So after all of that, it's interesting. Paul's funny. He's, he's funny. He says, I don't have any needs. I've learned the secret to contentment. I'm good. I'm content. And then after all that, he says, but I'm really thankful for your gift. It's kind of you. So Paul, I think this just it shows the humanity of Paul. He's not some like unfeeling robot. Right? Being content in Jesus doesn't mean that we lose all sense of feeling and compassion towards people or towards life. Right? He's still moved by their kindness and generosity for him. And then in verse 15 we see this. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So what this tells us is that the gift that they sent to Paul to, in Rome, it wasn't a one-time thing. It's not a one-time gift. But that this was an ongoing partnership of their support of him, the Philippians' support of him, and the spread of the gospel. Okay? They were generous again and again. And he goes on, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, there's really a lot that I could say there, and it could almost uh, be another sermon. Paul is saying here, he's essentially saying, I'm not really that concerned with your money. Or, maybe another way to say it is, I'm not that concerned about getting your money. I appreciate it. Thank you. But the joy I have from your gift is in the meaning of your giving. He's saying, I know that you know all that God has done for you and given to you in Jesus because you're willing to turn around and give to me. See that? But not only that, the principle here is, You are never poorer for having to give in to God and his purposes. You never have less when you give to God. Notice Paul uses that phrase, increases to your credit. That's actually a really interesting phrase. It's an accounting metaphor he uses here. And what he's saying is, when you give to the Lord and his work, that's a very good and secure investment. And it pays really high, high interest for all of eternity. That's what he's really saying, right? Some of you here, maybe like myself, have money invested in stocks, bonds, or mutual funds, right? That's great. Probably wise. I would probably recommend you do that, right? But, of course, there's always a risk. Always, right? Even the safest financial investments have no guarantees, But when you invest in God's work, listen, there's no risk. There's no risk, and you get the highest possible return on your investment. And he says, God is pleased. God is pleased. That's what Paul is saying here, right? I love this. I love this. 
But, but I just want to stop here for, for a moment and talk about this, this principle. I know this isn't a direct teaching from the text, but it's certainly inferred. It is inferred here. And that is that Jesus' riches inform what we do with our riches. Right? Listen, we know this. We know this. But the gospel has always spread. And the church has always advanced through the regular sacrificial giving of Jesus' people. We see that here. We saw that through the life of Christ. Right? Jesus himself, through his ministry, what does he say? I have nowhere to sleep. Right? I have no home. He says, I'm homeless. How did he, get, how did he do his ministry? Through financial support of others. Right? In Acts 4, Acts 5, right in the beginning of the church, right? There's a, the lame man on the side of the road, and, and the apostles are walking by. He needs begging. I need financial support. And what do they do? They empty their pockets and say, silver and gold, we have none. But here's what we do have. Stand up and walk, right? The apostles had nothing, no financial uh, ability. And Paul even said, right, we read it in 1 Corinthians 4. I know what it is to be homeless, right? I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, right? Was he, were the apostles living in abundance, right? Was Jesus living in abundance? No, right? No. Anytime we see the gospel advancing, the church advancing, it's always been done through the regular sacrificial giving of Jesus' people. That's still the same case today. And I know this, right? Anytime we talk about money, anytime, doesn't matter here in the church, but probably especially in the church, but at home, amongst family, maybe your parents ask you about your money situation or a friend, right? People can get a little bit sensitive. And that's because money is a cultural idol, right? We find security, value, and comfort in money. And so we don't like it when other people talk about our money and what we should do with it. But because money has such a tendency to grip our hearts and pull on the strings of our emotions, the Bible addresses it a lot. Actually, if you're going to rank the three things that Jesus talked about the most, the most, it's the kingdom, money, and eternal separation from him. Those are number one, two, and three. Jesus talks about money a lot. What we should think about our money, what should we do with our money? Why? Because Jesus is after your heart. And so here's what we know. Here's what we know. In the Old Testament, Israel was expected, they were mandated, I'll use that phrase, they were mandated to give a minimum of 10%, a tithe, of the first fruits that they had back to God. Okay? It's a law, expectation. But more than that, when you added up all of their offerings, all of their givings that they did regularly throughout the year for the festivals, for celebrations, for feasts, for taking care of the poor, um, the widows, right? They gave, a, a Jewish person gave, was expected to give upwards of somewhere around 22 to 25% of what they had. It's pretty amazing compared to our standard today, I think, okay? Now, we know that the New Testament, okay, after Christ, the church, the New Testament doesn't mandate that. 
doesn't mandate this. And that's why here at this church, we don't specifically teach tithe, okay, giving a 10% as a rule, as legalism. But, but we do believe that the New Testament is clear in that it teaches generous, glad, grace-centered, regular giving. And so, for example, listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. He says this. This is Paul again, by the way. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So be generous. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. So not out of legalism, but because of grace, do this. For why? For God loves a cheerful giver. So he says, do it with gladness. Be generous. Do it under grace with a glad and joyful heart. See, understanding God's riches towards us should change. It should change how we view and handle the riches that God has entrusted to us. In light of all the things that we've discussed, if you've been here the duration of Philippians, this whole letter, all of God's incalculable riches that are now yours and mine by faith in Christ, that should change everything about us. Everything. The gospel changes everything, meaning how we also see and handle our money. And I'll say it this way. The more you are gripped, the more you are gripped by the majesty and worth of Jesus, the more we will be willing to release the grip on our cash for him for others, and the things of his kingdom. The more I hold on to him, the more likely I'll be to let go of my resources. And doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that make sense? That the more we anchor our security and our significance in his riches that are far superior than any riches in this world, the more Christ-centered we'll view our money. After all, When's the last time you thought about this? After all, it's just pieces of paper and metal coins that human beings have assigned value to. That's what we're talking about here, right? It's crazy. It's nonsense that we hold on to that so tightly. And let me again be clear with this. I want to be really clear because I know that the church has misused this, abused this, right? People have a are very sensitive when anybody in leadership or a pastor comes up and talks about money. So let me be clear. Jesus is not after your money. He's after your heart. And by the way, all of your money and my money is already his anyways. It's already his anyways. Everything is his. But he wants, he wants to us, he wants us to show him what we treasure And the way that we do that is by letting go of portion, a portion of our earthly treasure. And so although the Bible doesn't teach to specifically give 10% today as a rule, I would argue it still remains a very good guide and a very helpful principle. Which means, though, right, for some of us, the Holy Spirit will lead you to cheerfully give more than that. Okay, Because, again, it's out of a generous, glad heart. So some of you will look at 10% and say, oh, no, we can... We are glad, I am glad and cheerfully to give over and above that. And for others of you, the Holy Spirit will convict you and you will have peace about getting, giving less. 
But, however, I will say this. Even to that, especially if you're here in the camp who's like, oh, I have a piece about giving less. This is not me. I want to be really careful. This is not me putting myself above you. I'm just trying to help you because I, too, want God to have your heart. I want him to have all of you. But for me, and I hope it's not just me, but it's just incomprehensible. Actually, someone, maybe at the end of the service on the first floor, you could help me understand. I can't understand how a child of the living God, knowing all that Jesus has done for them, would give less than the Old Testament standard. Think about this. You've maybe never thought about this before. Is it even possible for us to consider that we would give less under grace than the Jews gave under the law? They were obligated to give that money and did it. Now you're under grace. How much more willing should you be? Should be oh, how much more should you be willing to give? So listen, when we we should think of our giving. We should think of our giving. Even if you are here today and you've been faithful to giving 10%, I'm in this camp, but we should not think of ourselves as heroic. By the way, this is not a, a high level of commitment. You're not like the super faithful of Freedom Village. No, this is entry-level obedience. And it's been that way for centuries. So for Jesus' people, for people who see him as worthy, giving back to God, giving back to God should be the first line on your budget. should be the first line for the spread of the gospel, the care of Jesus' people, and to support the church. Now, some will ask, well, what if I can't afford to give? Okay, some of you are thinking that right now. Well, I will when I can afford it. But God is really smart. <laughs> Here's the beauty of giving of your first fruits. If you give to God first, you always have something to give. Because giving isn't last, it's first. It doesn't matter what you have, give first, you always have something to give. Well, what if I don't have much to give? I just don't have a lot. Again, Don't miss the point here. Don't miss the principle. God doesn't care how much. He's simply after your heart. He's concerned about the position and the posture of your heart. And maybe you're here today, you're in a season where you actually have no money. You have no income. Maybe you're living off student loans. Right? No problem. Give other ways. Right? Don't, Don't give of your student loans. That's for your loans. That's for school. Give other ways, though. Give of your time. Give of your gifts. Serve faithfully, right? There's so many different ways that you can contribute to this family, this local church, but not only that, ways you can contribute in our city, right? You can do these offerings that we've shared or just help pack boxes even. Some of you, okay, because we're all about being transparent, I hope. Well, some of you say, well, what about you? You're pointing at me. (laughs) Well, what about you, Pastor James? Do you do this? The pastor, you're telling us to do this. Yep, I do. Even though the church supports me, I give back at least 10%, at least 10% of the money that enters into my home comes back here. And by the way, on top of that, there are offerings, there are giving to other ministries outside of Freedom Village, there are giving to other missionaries, and there's giving to other people within our congregation and outside of the congregation individually who have need, as the Lord leads me and my family. Well, what about the other leaders here? Right? So you're going to try to find a way. What about the other leaders here? 
Well, I'll say this, because I don't check the books. I hope they do. I asked Carrie last year, all right, I asked Pastor Carrie last year, do they, everybody who sits on the leadership table, I didn't ask how much and how often, I just asked him, do they give? Yes. Every one of them, faithfully, gives. I hope that hasn't changed. Okay, how about Freedom Village Church? What do you do with all the money? Do you give? Yep, we do. We give as a local church as well. Definitely more than 10% of everything that's brought in here, above 10%, far beyond, goes out of this local church to help other people. Church planting, church planters, other ministries, uh, overseas missionaries. Absolutely, we give. And again, please understand, again, this is not, this is not me bragging or, or, or bragging on our leaders or anything, saying, wow, look at our faith, right? This is just basic obedience. God wants us to be generous. He says there in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. And so, of course, I want to give because I want to do the things that my God loves, I want to please my king. And if he loves a cheerful giver, I'm going to be a cheerful giver. So listen, something today for every one of us, something comes first in your budget. So what is it? What comes first for you? Right? Listen, this matters. It's a big deal because how we use our money and see money, how we see money is an indicator of Jesus' significance and his worth to us. Um, I want to say this as well. Look, those of you who know me, who know me, you've been around the church for a while. Some of you have been, um, like, with Way Church before even Freedom Village, and you've known me. I've been, like, pastoring you or teamwork for over five years now. So you know this about me, because some of you are newer to the gathering. So you're wondering, wow, oh, here's another guy who talks about money, right? Those of you who know me, you know this. I don't talk about money very much. In fact, this is the first sermon for me, first sermon for me, that the topic of money has even been a point in my sermon, to my knowledge. First time in, first sermon, I was 19 years old, 35 now, so you do the math. 16 years, something like that. 10 years of regular preaching. First time, I don't talk about money that much. And that's because, and I hope I can honestly, sincerely say this, the leaders can call me out on this. Because they've been in budget meetings with me, I get the monthly updates. They can call me out. I honestly, sincerely do not care about your money. I don't. I don't. Um, I, I was pastoring and church planting for eight years before this and took zero. So your money coming here doesn't affect me at all. If it was up to me, I would go back to leaders and I've talked to them about it. Give me less. They, they're generous towards me. I do not care. I'm thankful for that. I prayed, begged God when I was 21, please don't give me a heart after money. Because I knew the temptation in my heart, and I could see even my family, a very successful um, family in business, very successful. And so I knew that could be a path for me. And I just need to know, God, I might have a lot of money, but even if I do, I cannot have a temptation for money. That's why I don't look at the books either here at all. I have no idea who gives, who doesn't give. I don't care about your money. But, like Jesus, like Paul, as your pastor, I do, I do very much so care about your heart. And so it's my job to tell you, 
It's my job. Someone has to. When we are not a glad, generous people in our giving, it says something about Jesus' place in your heart. So what does the money you give or don't give say about you in your heart? Well, then Paul wraps up his letter like this. Verse 21 to 22. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. He says, hey, say hello to all the followers. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So here he's talking about the local church in Rome. He says, the brothers here and sisters in Caesar's house, they they greet you along with me. And so it's good for us to know, we're not going to expound on this, but just good for us to know, we're not only as the church, we're not only saints together, but we're actually a spiritual family. Caesar's household, in Philippi, Thessalonica, Colossians, we are a spiritual family, brothers and sisters, siblings, together in Christ. And then he ends, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And this is, by the way, how Paul begins and ends every one of his letters. Anchored in grace, which is God's undeserved kindness. It's his grace that saves, his grace that transforms, and his, it's, it's his grace that will ultimately take us home, back to him. So let's understand, this is Paul now putting, putting this whole thing, this whole letter together. He's talking to real people in real places who by the grace of God have been made saints and siblings together which we call Jesus' local church. And Paul's message to the church, to Philippi, and to us here, Freedom Village, in Hebongchon, in Seoul, South Korea, his message to us is this. This is Philippians. Press on. Press on because we have a gracious, good Savior. Press on because we have a King, a victor, who has made us his own. Press on because he has set you and I apart. Press on because he continues to pursue you even when we continually turn from him. The message is simple and clear. Pursue Jesus. Press on. Pursue him because he is gain. Pursue him because he is worthy. He is beautiful. Pursue him because he is supreme. And the level to which we see Jesus as supreme would, will, will, it will show itself in part in our contentment and how we handle our money. Listen, right now, right now, in light of Paul's letters to, letter to the Philippians, in light of this letter, the call to all of us is to respond to Jesus with fresh faith and a living trust in him. It's a call right now. It's a call to join the millions upon millions of believers throughout history who have said with Paul, I count it all loss when compared to the surpassing greatness of Jesus because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And because of that, we can now rightfully say with Paul, this is verse 20, to our God and Father, be glory, which is a summary term for honor, trust, respect, beauty, love, power, worship, reverence, praise, 
adoration to God, our Father, be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. That's the book of Philippians. Let me pray for you.